0: And go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, it's page 987. 1 Thessalonians 5. We're continuing our reflections on one verse, 1 Thessalonians 5:17. And let's pray before we read God's Word. Pray with me. Gracious God, help us. We're weak, we are needy. And without your Spirit's help, Lord, your Word uh, will not do its work like it could. So please help us, help us to focus, to pay attention, to stay awake and alert. Lord, give us conviction and mind renewal. Lord, for those of us who need to repent, give us repentance, for those of us who need to be encouraged, encourage us, work in whatever way glorifies you now, Lord, help me to preach in a God-honoring manner, giving you the glory, and help me to really bring out the meaning and the implications and the applications of this passage. Through Jesus we pray, amen. 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, God's word says, pray without ceasing. And God gives us ears to hear his word. They told us in seminary to be very careful whenever you preach and teach about prayer. Be very careful whenever you preach and teach about prayer, they told us, because almost inevitably people will become very much convicted and go away feeling thoroughly guilty. Now, in my experience, that is true, but I'd like us to think through now why that's true. Why is it that we feel so uniquely convicted and ashamed when we think about prayer? I don't think it can be merely because we all know we can and should pray more. I don't think that's the case because the same could be said about a wide variety of other duties. For example, we can and should love our neighbors more. We can and should serve in our church more. We can and should give to missions more and work harder at our jobs and be more joyful and love our children and and do a thousand other things more and better. And yet most of those other areas are not accompanied by the same sense of guilt and shame as our prayer lives. The more I think about it, the more I believe the real reason why we feel so guilty and ashamed whenever we talk about prayer is because of what prayer reveals about us. It shows us who we really are, what we really value. And for many of us, that's not a pretty picture. You know, it's kind of like sometimes we avoid looking in the mirror because we're afraid of what we're going to see. I want you to consider a couple of quotes with me from saints who have gone before us and think through what they say about the role of prayer in revealing who we actually are. First, J.I. Packer said this, I believe that prayer is the measure of the man spiritually in a way that nothing else is. The Christian is at his sanest and wisest when he prays. About 150 years before that, the young pastor Robert Murray McShane, who died at, I think he was 29, said this, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What does your prayer life reveal about you? What does your prayer life reveal about you? What you truly value, what you prioritize, and is that something you'd rather not think about? Well, it's with this that we return to our little mini-series on praying without ceasing. We've been studying through 1 Thessalonians for over a year now, and we've come to the conclusion of the book, which is a a collection of a variety of commands on all sorts of different topics. And as you can see here in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, God is commanding all of us who believe in the Lord Jesus to pray without ceasing. And understanding what that command means, and really more importantly, how we can put that into practice is the burden of this little mini-series. Now, to remind you quickly of what we talked about last week, we considered last week the meaning of this command, pray without ceasing. And and like we saw last week, uh, this is actually a surprisingly simple command. It's not characterized by convoluted Greek or deep theology. It's really simple. Believers in the Lord Jesus are to saturate their lives with prayer. Believers in the Lord Jesus are to saturate their lives in prayer. Prayer should not be this minor thing for you. It's sort of this little uh, check on the box that you accomplish every morning, and it takes about you know, 30 seconds to a minute. No, it should be a major part of who you are, a major part of your life. If there aren't times in your life where you've got to say, you know, I really ought to turn the TV off, I should devote some time to prayer. If there aren't times where you're saying, you know, I can't go play golf today, I haven't really had a good time in prayer, uh, I don't really know if you get the significance that prayer ought to be in the ordinary Christian life. And keep in mind, we talked about this last week, this is not something just for missionaries and pastors, but this is for all believers in Jesus. If you consider yourself a follower of Christ, prayer really ought to have a major role in your life. Also last week, we talked about some strategies for saturating our lives in prayer. If God has commanded us, pray without ceasing, and if the Holy Spirit helps believers obey God's commands, then this is something that we, with God's help, can do. And last week, we considered four simple strategies for making prayer a more significant part of our lives. I won't rehash them all now, if you were you might listen to last week's sermon, but there are relatively easy things we can do to more thoroughly flood our days and lives with prayer. Well, this morning, we're going to continue reflecting on some of these strategies for more thoroughly saturating our lives with prayer. Again, if he's commanded us to pray without ceasing, and if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, this is something that you can and should do. So what are some additional strategies for doing it? That's this morning's sermon. Let me give you some of these strategies, and here's the first one. Try designating a specific place your prayer closet. Try designating a specific place your prayer closet. Now, I find it interesting how on a number of occasions, certain saints in the Bible had what we might call a prayer closet. For instance, like Daniel, uh, we read this earlier in the service, every day, three times a day, he went to the windows of his house, which were facing Jerusalem, and there he prayed. And he did that even after there was this decree that he was not supposed to do that. He continued to go to his prayer closet. I'm studying the Psalms in my personal devotions, and something that's grabbed my attention is how often David talks about praying on his bed. This comes up over and over and over again. He seems to view his bed as almost like his prayer closet. Additionally, in Matthew 6, 6, Jesus speaks in such a way as if to assume that believers would have a prayer closet. Listen to Matthew 6, 6, and see how he sort of suggests that this is the norm. Jesus says, "'When you pray, go into your room and shut the door "'and pray to your Father who is in secret.'" and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I want to be clear that I don't think the Bible is commanding us to have prayer closets. You know, if you don't have one of these, don't think it's sin or something like that. Additionally, in the New Testament, there is no sense whatsoever that certain parcels of ground are more holy than others. Uh, You know, you could just as easily pray in, in a jail cell as you could at, say, the western wall of the temple in Jerusalem. That being said, there does seem to be some wisdom in designating a particular location your prayer closet could be your home office or your basement, could be your attic or your garage, maybe that forest behind your yard or maybe a bridge, it's under a bridge somewhere, but by relocating to this location, I'm devoting it uniquely to prayer. And what can happen is that it's almost like you get in the, the prayer mood when you go to this location. Now, I don't want to talk too fruity or something like that, but it's almost like by training yourself, I associate this location to prayer, my heart kind of gets into a prayer mode once I go there. I want you to consider with me the testimony of the great missionary John G. Patton. If you remember John G. Patton, an incredible missionary story. He went to the cannibals of the New Hebrides. Uh, but what a lot of people don't realize is that he became who he became in part because he observed his father's prayer life. And I want to read to you a section from his autobiography and notice the role that this father's prayer closet played in John Patton's life. It's a long section, but follow along. I think you'll get it. He writes this. Our home consisted of a butt and a bend and a midroom or chamber called the closet. The closet was a very small apartment betwixt the two other, having a room only for a bed, a little table, and a chair with a diminutive window shedding diminutive light on the scene. Thither daily, and oftentimes a day, generally after each meal, we saw our father retire and shut the door, and we children got to understand by a sort of spiritual instinct, for the thing was too sacred to be talked about, that prayers were being poured out there for us. We occasionally heard the pathetic echoes of a trembling voice pleading as if for life, and we learned to slip out and in past that door and tiptoe, not to disturb the holy colloquy. The outside world might not know, but we knew whence came that happy light of a newborn smile that always was dawning on my father's face. It was a reflection from the divine presence in the consciousness of which he lived. Now get this next section. This next section is so interesting. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of my memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet, and hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal, he walked with God, may not I. I think that illustrates the effect a godly father, and particularly a father devoted to prayer, can have on the lives of their kids. You want to know where my prayer closet is? It's back there in those hallways. Uh, I find it beneficial to actually walk slowly while I pray, and since I've got access to this building 24-7, I'll often come here, maybe early in the morning, maybe in the afternoon, maybe at night, to pray. Now, can I pray anywhere? Of course. And do I do a good bit of praying in other locations? Yes, of course. But it does help the mind to kind of focus in where, where I've got this location where I know that I'm not going to be interrupted and I can talk freely and openly to God. I'd encourage you to try designating someplace your prayer closet. Identify the secure location where you don't expect to be interrupted and just start pouring out your soul to God. I think that might increase the freedom with which you speak to God and also your enjoyment of prayer. Let me give you a second strategy for saturating your life with prayer. Second, uh, attempt to pray scriptural requests, even utilizing scriptural phrases, especially when you pray for others. I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, but attempt to pray scriptural requests, even utilizing scriptural phrases when you pray for others. Now, last week we talked about praying scripture, which is a wonderful thing to do. And again, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to the little part last week on praying scripture. Uh, This is related to that, but this is not that. Here what I'm trying to say is that our prayer requests should align with scriptural requests as closely as possible. You see, we are sinners, fallen imperfect sinners. And because of that, it's so easy for our prayers to degenerate, degenerate into kind of mindless cliches that don't really mean anything. And we can even get to the point where we're saying things and we pause to think about it and we think, you know, what am I even asking God in that prayer? You know, every prayer becomes bless so-and-so or be with so-and-so or put a hedge of protection around so-and-so. And again, if you think about it, am I just kind of mimicking what I've heard other people pray and I don't even know what I'm praying for? Now, along these lines, God has promised in his word to, pr- to answer those prayers that are prayed according to his will. This comes up frequently. For example, in 1 John 5.14, this is God's promise. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. So that's God's promise. Whatever you pray according to my will, I will hear, I will answer. Now, pulling some of these threads together, I believe that by praying scriptural requests and even using scriptural language, that can ensure that our prayer requests are more in line with God's will. For example, instead of praying, Lord, be with our missionaries, why don't you pray, say, Colossians four three, that God may open to them a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. Instead of praying, Lord, please work in my kids' hearts, pray for them. For example, the prayer of Acts twenty twenty or pardon me twenty six eighteen. Lord, open their eyes that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And instead of praying just, Lord, bless our deacons, you might pray these prayers from Colossians, Ephesians, Second Timothy, or Second Peter, pardon me, that, that our deacons might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened, that they might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see what I'm doing? I'm trying to align my request with scriptural language. So instead of praying just for a successful ministry, Pray for a ministry that bears much fruit. Instead of praying that God would grow our church, pray that Jesus would build our church. And instead of praying that Christians might, say, influence America, pray that we would make disciples in America. I think the difference is important. We're more and more thinking in Bible terms and Bible categories as opposed to ones that we import onto Scripture. Now, if you're going to try and do this, there are a couple of realities to be aware of. First, praying scriptural requests. It obviously implies that you're at least somewhat familiar with the Bible. Uh, so be reading your Bible. And here's something I might recommend. As you read the Bible, maybe just jot down good prayer requests you come across. You, know, you might be reading Colossians, Ephesians, something like that. This would be a really good prayer to pray for my brother-in-law. Maybe jot that down and remember that for later. Realize also that there is nothing magical about scriptural language. You know, If you start doing this without your brain engaged, without your heart engaged, uh, that's just as bad as vain repetition. So as we pray scriptural requests, keep your heart and mind engaged, lest it degenerate into that kind of mindless babble that the Gentiles do. Those realities notwithstanding, I would encourage you to pray scriptural requests, even using scriptural language, especially for others. Uh, That really might transform your prayer life. Quickly, a third strategy. Third, try praying the prayer of others. Try praying the prayers of others. Now, if you consider yourself a Baptist, like I do, we Baptists have a history of rejecting pre-written prayers. Uh, a saying you may have heard before is a prayer that's read is a prayer that's dead. Anybody ever heard that before? Now, I am a Baptist and a very happy one, but I have also benefited enormously from using the pre-written ...of other people, some of whom have been dead for centuries? Along these lines, you might consider two things. First, we Baptists have never had a problem using hymnals. And you think about it, but what are hymns but the prayers and praises of other people that we then employ as our own? And, you know, does putting them to music make them somehow more magical? I mean, that, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. So if you've got no problem using a hymnal, why would you have a problem using somebody else's prayer? Additionally, the Bible includes an entire collection of suggested prayers that we should be using regularly, and that's called the Book of Psalms. The the Psalms are written by other people, and we can, again, if our hearts and our minds are engaged, use those with great benefit. Part of what's going on here, and we're going to talk about this more next week, is that we all learn to pray by mimicking the prayers of others. This is actually unavoidable. It's, It's kind of, you can't not do this, but we learn to pray by mimicking the prayers of others. For example, in our circles, pretty much everybody prays this way, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Now, where's that come from? We we didn't come out of the womb talking that way. We've picked that up listening, listening to others. So also, by reading and even praying the prayers of other godly saints, that can teach us how to pray, and it can give us good ideas of other things to pray for. There are written prayers that I've read through that I've thought, you know, I had never thought of praying for that. But this has now given me a good prayer request that I might pray for many years. Maybe an example here will help. This is a prayer by Martin Luther, and it's a great one to pray before you, say, read the Bible or hear a sermon. But listen to what Martin Luther prayed before engaging with the Bible. He prayed this, Dear Lord, pardon me, Dear Lord God, give me your grace that I might rightly understand your word, and more than that, do it. O most blessed Lord Jesus Christ, see to it that my search after knowledge leads me to glorify you alone. If not, let me not know a single letter. I think that's a good humility there to keep in mind. We're not just reading the Bible to win jeopardy if we ever wind up on jeopardy. No, we're we're reading the Bible to glorify God. Give me only what I, a poor sinner, need to glorify you alone. Amen. Again, wouldn't that be better to read with with the heart and mind engaged before you engage with the Bible uh, than just Lord bless my Bible reading? Now again, like anything, there are dangers to be aware of. Realize that Using others' prayers can become incredibly ritualistic if you let your heart and mind not be engaged. You know, if you find yourself, say, right before you go to sleep, just quickly reading aloud Luther's prayer and then going to sleep, you know, realize you've kind of gone off the reservation there. That's not a healthy practice. So, So rein yourself back in. Do your best to keep your heart and mind engaged. Remind yourself that, again, there's nothing magical about the phraseology we use. That is, for some reason, a tendency in the flesh to think that we have these sort of magical mantras and that they'll get us what we want. That's, that's not Christian thinking at all. Additionally, realize that you as, God's child as, ju- you have God, as God's child, as just as easy and free access to God as any saint of old because of Jesus' blood. And lastly, if you find yourself relying excessively or exclusively on the prayers of others, that's where I'd encourage you to pull back. Uh, I think our extemporaneous personal prayers ought to be the majority of our praying, but at the same time, again, we can benefit from other prayers at times. Now, if you're looking for some good collections of prayers, let me give you three resources here. First, the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions by Arthur Bennett. Raise your hand if you've ever read or used Valley of Vision. Not half of you. Very, very good. Uh, I think I've prayed through it six times, honestly. We do have a copy in our... Uh, library Uh, again it'll give you wonderful ideas of things to pray for that you probably have never crossed your mind value vision great resource the second the prayer the pastor in prayer collection of the sunday morning prayers of charles spurgeon a couple things you'll notice from his collected prayers Uh, first they are about three times as long as my pastoral prayers are which might catch your attention Uh, You know, maybe I won't pursue this too far, but I have had people criticize me that my pastoral prayer is too long. Well, imagine it being three times as long. But additionally, the childlike faith expressed in his prayers is really quite remarkable. So you might check that one out. And then lastly, Luther's prayers edited by Herman Bokering. If you know me, you know that I love Luther's spirituality. I think you really got what it means to engage with God as a justified sinner. And that comes out quite beautifully in his prayers. That might be something to try as an enhancement to your prayer life to pray the prayers of others. Moving on, number four. Don't always pray the same prayer. Kind of the flip side of the one we just, a couple that we just mentioned here. Don't always pray the same prayer. Now, you can examine your own prayer life, but for most of us, there are certain individuals, certain concerns that we pray for literally every single day. Do you have those? I mean, for me, for example, I pray for my wife every single day. I pray for each of my kids every single day. I've got friends that I pray for every single day. And I'm not unique in this at all. I'm not trying to display my godliness. I think all of us have these concerns, these burdens, that we literally pray for every single day. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. That is wonderful. But the danger is that when we're praying the same request or for the same people, that it's easy to fall into that mindless repetition. And I confess that there have been times for each of my kids and the words are coming out, but my mind is somewhere else. I'm thinking about lunch or something like that. To the point where I gotta pause and think, okay, which child was I praying for? You know, I'm just sort of saying the words out loud, and, and my engagement has has become so minimal that I kind of forgot what I was doing. Uh, that's not good. Like Donald Whitney writes in his little book, Simplify Your Spiritual Life: Prayers without variety eventually become words without meaning. Now, Jesus clearly taught us against this tendency. In Matthew 6, 7, he said, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So this is the predicament we find ourselves in. We've got these concerns that we are deeply burdened for, individuals that we deeply love. We want to pray for them every day, uh, but there's a tendency to fall into vain repetition. So how can we fight that? Well, one way that I have found to fight this is to vary the wording of the request. You're praying the same thing, but you're varying the language enough that it doesn't become just mindless repetition. So, for example, let's imagine we're praying for somebody's conversion. On Monday, you might pray, Lord, open their hearts that they might trust in Christ. On Tuesday, you might pray, Lord, give them faith in the gospel. On Wednesday, you might pray, Father, rescue them out of the kingdom of darkness. And on whatever the next day was, pray, Holy Spirit, give them the new birth. You see what I'm saying? Don't always pray at the same request. By varying the wording, it helps me keep my mind engaged and to mean what I'm saying. Just a couple more, and then we'll be done. Number five, try fasting as an aid to prayer. Try fasting as an aid to prayer. Now, if you've read the Bible, you'll know that the Bible actually talks quite a bit about fasting, more than you might realize. And by fasting, let us be careful, we're talking about intentionally abstaining from food for the purpose of cultivating your walk with the Lord. That's what fasting is. Just to give you a couple examples of fasting in scripture, in Joel 1.14 we read this, Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Jesus spoke of fasting in Matthew six seventeen. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And lastly, lest we think that fasting is only this sort of Old Testament idea, listen to Acts fourteen twenty three. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Fasting is actually mentioned 77 times in Scripture, which again is a lot more than you might realize. And frequently in Scripture, fasting is linked with prayer. Not every single time, but frequently fasting is linked with prayer. And the suggestion is that by fasting, that will somehow enhance my prayer life. It will somehow increase my devotion, my intensity in prayer. Now, I need to confess that I have not fasted very much in my Christian life at all. And honestly, I'm a little bit embarrassed by this. You know, in close to 40 years of being a Christian, I've fasted a handful of times, I can't speak personally to the benefits of this very much, but I have read a good bit on fasting, and those who fast frequently often say the most glorious things about it. I've got one book that I'm thinking of in particular that said essentially this, if you find your spiritual life struggling, if you feel like you're, you're just kind of chugging along with no growth, no, maybe give fasting a try. It might just be what you need to jumpstart your Christian life. Those who fast regularly, they will attribute to it all sorts of benefits including clearing the mind, enhancing expressions of repentance, enabling you to better sympathize with the poor and the needy, building self-discipline, fighting lusts of the flesh, increasing your passion for God, increasing the likelihood of God sending revival. I mean, again, especially older books where it was more common, they do speak quite loftily of fasting. Now, I want to think through the dynamics of this. How does fasting enhance prayer? How does me abstaining from food somehow relate to my prayer life? Well, in my limited experience here's how it works. Uh, when you're fasting, there at least feeling hunger pangs you know i am not talking like you know starvation hunger pangs, but just kind of urge you know I think it's time for a sandwich. You know you've gone four or six hours. What you can do is two things first, you can use the time that you would have spent eating you know your lunch hour and pray. but additionally, you can use those hunger pangs as reminders to pray about a certain thing so let's imagine i've set aside this day i'm going to you know instead of eating, I'm going to fast and pray for X. So at lunch break, instead of eating, I pray for X. But then at, say, 2.30, I feel a little bit of hunger pang. Oh, I'm fasting today. Let me pray for X. Uh, 3 o'clock, oh, I got a little hunger pang. Let's pray for X. And what can happen is that all throughout the day, you're getting these ever-present reminders, almost like you know sonar beeps, to keep praying for this thing. And what you'll discover is that at the end of the day, you've prayed maybe two dozen times for this thing, being reminded by your, your, your hunger urges. See what I'm saying? Now, if you're going to consider fasting, let me give you a couple of parameters here. Um, first, if you've got any sort of serious health concern, talk to your doctor first. If you've got you know, heart issues, uh, cancer, something like that, by all means, talk to your doctor first. This is you know, not something you want to fool around with. Especially if you're going to fast for two, three days or more, you might consult a doctor first. Second, if and when you fast, make sure you drink plenty of water. If and when you fast, make sure you drink plenty of water. With the exception of the miraculous fasts in Scripture, which there are a couple, you know, Jesus fast for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is fast fasted 40 days and nights, we think the majority of fasts included drinking water. So if you're going to fast, drink a lot of water, and probably more than you're used to drinking. Third, if you've never fasted before, try a brief fast first. If you've never fasted before, try a brief fast first. You know, try 24 hours, 36 hours, before you go like a week or so. I think you all can understand why. And then lastly, do realize the Bible does not command New Testament believers to fast. The Bible does not command New Testament believers to fast. While again, it can be a great benefit to some, and again, many have found it very helpful, we're not commanded to fast in the same way that we are commanded to, say, gather with our church family, or to read the Bible. So do realize that in one sense, it's more of a wisdom issue than a command issue, if that makes any sense. Now, if you'd like to read more about fasting, the place I'd encourage you to turn is chapter nine of Donald Whitney's book... Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. He's got a whole chapter on fasting if you want to read about it. And I think he's done a lot more than I have. So check out chapter 9 of Daniel Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. I think you'll find it helpful. Let me give you a last strategy this morning for learning to pray without ceasing. And this is one I hope that I can convey. This one's easier experienced than described. But keep praying until you pray keep praying until you pray. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, it's been my experience, and this is not unique to me. I've read a good bit on praying, and what I've discovered is that a lot of people have this experience. You need about 10, 15 minutes of praying before you kind of push through the distractions and really start doing business with God. Again, it's more easily experienced than described, but for me, People, our minds are so connected to what we were just experiencing uh, that, you're, you're, yes, you're saying words to God, but your mind is still on the conversation you had, or it's still on the movie you just watched. You're still on that angry email. And, and even though you're kind of going through the motions, there's this kind of initial period i got to push through before I just freely, openly talk to the Lord. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Don Carson wrote this. Christians should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feelings of formalism and unreality that attend not a little praying. We are especially prone to such feelings when we pray for only a few minutes, rushing to be done with mere duty. To enter the spirit of prayer, we must stick with it for a while. If we pray until we pray, eventually we will come to delight in God's presence, to rest in his love, to cherish his will. Even in dark or agonizing praying, we somehow know we are doing business with God. Again, I and many have experienced this, this kind of initial... I don't know what you call it, but, but i got to push through distractions. But here's the thing. If our prayers never last longer than that initial five or ten minutes, we're not really doing much true business with God. You know, let's say I limit my prayer life to five, ten minutes. I'm, I'm always stuck in that sort of initial, uh, you know, so distracted I'm not really praying that I'm not actually engaging with God. And again, for me, it typically takes a good five, ten minutes before I really feel like I'm freely expressing my concerns to God. Because of all of that, here's my challenge to you. And this is something I'd challenge you to do between now and next Sunday. Are you ready? This is a, the, 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 I'm not binding your conscience. You know, This is not a command of God. If you choose not to do this, that's totally fine. But in applying some of what we're talking about, this is what I'd challenge you to do. Sometime this next week, block out 30 minutes. Now, that might be longer than you've ever prayed before, but, but give it a try. Block out 30 minutes and find your prayer closet. Again, it could be anywhere... You know, your home office could be out in the woods, but find somewhere all alone where you don't expect to be interrupted, and and start praying until you pray. Just start talking to God out loud. You might think, I don't, you know, what should I pray for? Well, what are those things that are burdening you and concerning you right now? I mean, realize in part, God allows stresses to come into our lives because he wants us to turn them into prayer requests. So, so what is it that's burdening you, weighing you down right now? Begin there and just start talking to the Lord, and don't worry so much about eloquent vocabulary or big theological terms. You know, I, don't, I don't know why it is, but a lot of people think, you know, I don't know how to, I don't know what propitiation means. How am I going to pray? No, that, that don't worry about that at all. You know, just like you might talk to your mother about these different concerns, talk to them about, talk, talk to them about them with God and just start talking through things. And again, it might take five, ten minutes of you know, awkwardness and formality, but if you stick with it, eventually you'll find yourself freely communicating with God. Give that a try, and then come back next week, and I'd be interested, sincerely, in hearing about how the experience went. Literally, tell me, how did it go, trying, talking to God and praying until you pray? That's my challenge for you this next week. Well, the concluder time this morning, these then are just a few more strategies for saturating our lives in prayer. Believe it or not, I've got a few more that I'd like to share with you next week. But in conclusion, I want to come back to what I said at the beginning. I said at the beginning that part of the reason we don't, don't like talking about prayer is because it reveals so much about us. It reveals what we really value, what we really believe, what we really treasure, and for most of us, that's not a pretty picture. Our prayer lives, or lack thereof, at the end of the day, reveal how sinful we are. But in light of that, here's the good news. Jesus gladly died for all of your sins, including your prayerlessness. Let that sink in. Jesus gladly died for all of your sins, including your prayerlessness. And at the end of the day, your righteousness, if your hope is in Jesus, your righteousness is not your prayer life. It's not how fervently you pray or how many hours you pray or how many of these strategies you put into practice. No, Jesus is your righteousness, and because of that, God loves you as a heavenly father, your prayerlessness notwithstanding. You see, the Bible tells us that you God. Every last one of us. I love telling people that, especially in this, you know, confused relativistic world where we think we're just kind of monkeys that climbed out of the slime. You were made to know God, to have a relationship with the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. That's the reason why you're on this planet. And yet the reality of it is, all of us, without exception, have rebelled against our Creator. We've broken His laws, we've turned traitor on Him, and our prayerlessness is simply proof of that. We'd rather live without God than have Him as our loving loving, Heavenly Father. Now because our Creator, our God, is a good, holy God, He will punish us for our sins. He will pour out His wrath on us, and that's exactly what we deserve. And yet under these very circumstances, God still loved us. God still loved rebellious sinners. And what did he do? He made a way whereby we could be reconciled to him, forgiven of our sins, and enter back into a father-son relationship with him. God the Father sent God the Son down from heaven. His name was Jesus. Jesus took on flesh and blood, walked among us for 30-some years. He obeyed God perfectly in every conceivable way. And as we think about prayer, realize that he's the only one that prayed without ceasing. You know, As much as we aspire to grow in our prayer lives and want to pray without ceasing, we'll all continually fall short. But praise God, Jesus perfectly prayed without ceasing. But then the Bible tells us that Jesus died on the cross. And what's going on there is that on the cross, Jesus is bearing the judgment of God in the place of sinners. This is how the holy God can forgive sinners while remaining holy himself. It's by Jesus dying in our place, taking the judgment our sins deserve. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead to demonstrate that our hope is not in vain. And now, in response to all that Jesus has done, this is the invitation. Turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, be forgiven. Stop running from God. Stop trying to live without him. Stop you know, marching to the tune of your own drummer. Turn from all of that, rely on what Jesus has done, trust in his death, trust in his resurrection, and be forgiven. Enter back into that relationship with God the Father you were made for. This is why God sent his Son to earth, to reconcile us to God. And for those of us who are saved, who are forgiven, we're saved not because of anything we ever could do or have done, but only because of Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. So in conclusion, I beg you to trust Jesus now. Trust him now. If you've never committed yourself, body, and soul to the Lord Jesus, now is the time. Believe on his death and resurrection. Embrace his loving leadership and be reconciled to God. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, would like clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today. And today come to know Almighty God as your prayer-hearing Heavenly Father. us pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege of prayer. Lord, it is among those gifts that Jesus purchased for all who believe. Lord, we know that by nature we don't deserve to pray. We deserve an everlasting wrath. But you've not only forgiven us and clothed us in Jesus' righteousness, adopted us as sons and daughters, and given us the sure and, hope, uh, sure and certain hope of heaven, you've also given us the privilege of prayer to cast our cares on you, and to lay our souls bare before you, and to process with you what we're going through. Uh, please, Lord, make us people increasingly devoted to prayer. Uh, Lord, individually, in our families, as a congregation, please make us people that pray without ceasing, taking full advantage of this blessing. And yet, oh God, we do thank you that at the end of the day, our righteousness is not our prayer lives, our righteousness is Jesus. And we thank you for the way that he gladly died for those who don't pray like they, like they should. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.